Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're pleased to welcome Craig Hatkoff and his daughter, Isabella. Their new book is called Cecil's Pride, The True Story of a Lion King. As you may know, the revered Cecil was felled by a hunter in Zimbabwe in July 2015. The Hatkoff's new book sheds light on the life of Cecil and the dangers facing wildlife in Africa. Craig and his daughters, Isabella and Juliana, are animal lovers, as you'll soon find out. They have co-authored several books, including Leo the Snow Leopard, Winter's Tale, and the best-selling Owen and Mazay, which recounts the bond that developed between a tortoise and an orphaned hippopotamus in Kenya after the 2004 earthquake and tsunami. Welcome, Craig and Isabella. Thanks for being here. Oh, we're very excited. All right. So we're talking about your new book. And while we were talking about it before we went on air, we couldn't decide how to pronounce the name of the book. So I'm going to throw that over to you, Craig. Well, if the question were asked, is it Cecil or Cecil, I would answer by saying yes. And <laughs> it's, it's an interesting thing about how you pronounce names. It's tomato, tomato. We had another book, Owen and Mazay, and a lot of people, because it's spelled like Mazay. So we give permission to people to call it whatever they'd like to. While we're on that topic, who has the job of naming these lions? Actually, the way I understand the story from Brent Staplecamp, his wife is the one who has come up with the most names. And um, not every lion gets a name. It's only the ones with the distinguishing characteristic. Oh, interesting. Okay. So as you write in, I'll say Cecil's Pride, people around the world know that the lion was hunted and killed. But our listeners may not know how he lived. Could you talk about Cecil's home in Zimbabwe and why he was considered the king of the lions there? Well, let's start with where he lived. It's called Hwangi National Park. And when I first heard how large it was, I was actually a little bit surprised. It's a national park the size of the state of Connecticut. So that's a very oh big national park. And I think it underscores for the lion, uh, for the lion kingdom, they need lots of territory. And that's one of the reasons that Zimbabwe, uh, that uh, Hoangi National Park uh, has really been successful with uh, keeping their lions. And how did you first learn about the park and the story of Cecil? Isabella? I mean, that was all over the news and on all platforms of social media and the conversation, like topic of many conversations held everywhere. And that's all people talked about for a good while and even today. So I honestly don't know how I first heard about it. But that was your introduction. Yeah. The story of his death, really. Yes. Oh, okay. I only knew about him through his death. I see. Okay, so then let's talk a little bit about Brent. You mentioned him. He's an animal researcher. He has known Cecil for quite a while, or he knew him. Um, what? Tell us about his work and about the photographs that appear in your book. Well, Brent has been, he lives in Zimbabwe, 
And in fact, I believe he's building with his wife a new home. Uh, and he's been tracking Cecil. Uh, he's affiliated with Oxford University. Okay. And his job is to figure out the migration patterns and how much land will be necessary to sustain the lion population. And so that's really, so the way I understand it, the core of his work is you have to really keep track of where the animals are migrating. There are areas that sort of have watering holes and lots yeah. of uh, grass called pans. Mm -hmm. And I think there's seven major pans in Hoange uh, National Park. Okay, all right, thank you. And why did you leave out the details of Cecil's death in your book? A lot of our books deal with some, you know, traumatic issues that we try and address in a very uh, even-handed and uh, accessible manner, particularly for the young readers. Mm -hmm. So dwelling on it um, really was something that we just made a decision. This would be about the life, not so much. That, so I think there's just one sentence in there. Right. Um, and in the back matter, the, all these books sort of encourage conversations and questions and answers and critical thinking. Um, but I mean, Bella, what was your reaction to how we should handle that? Um, kind of the same as you, in my opinion. Um, his death should not be the thing he's remembered for, but his life story is kind of incredible and remarkable. So to only talk about or focus on like the downfall of such a great animal and such the, you know, the figure of an amazing story is kind of like a dishonor to him almost. I think that, yeah, like if you were to erect a statue of a great person, it's them in their prime. So why yeah, not? We, we kind of viewed this as a celebration of his life. And what made Cecil the Lion King? What made him so special? Well, I think in part is he was very photogenic, telegenic. <laughs> and Have you seen that face? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'd say a couple of things. One, his black mane, yeah, his mane is really, it's almost hard to believe that there's a figure out there. And I, you know, as we've been learning, the, the function of the mane is really to protect them when they're fighting. Oh, how so? It's padding, basically. Oh. Yeah, they're not soft and furry. They're kind of like horse bristles. I see. And, and lions with their, their paws are the size of like a dish plate. And one swipe, you know, you see lots of scars on on the lines and all these, in, you know, National Geographic videos, and they fight a lot for territory, for lionesses, and uh, for food, and that's really part of what under you know the underlying story really is how they have to find a place to live, and these are very uh, interesting groupings because at a point in time, the cubs will be thrown out of the pride. Yes. When they're old enough. Yes, and so that makes lions particularly vulnerable, you say, to hunting. I mean, there is legal hunting in Africa because of the need for tourism dollars. Is that right? I mean, is that? Oh, I'm sure it's a gross oversimplification. No, I think it, it's it, that's one of the topics that we encourage people to discuss. Mm -hmm. uh, the questionable nature of Cecil's death had to do with he was sort of induced out of the yes. uh, the park across the railroad tracks into an area that was probably not covered under the permit. Mm -hmm. But we see a range of different answers from protect lines 100%, they should be off limits, to um, overpopulation, 
there, one of the articles that just came out is because the uh, tourists and the hunters have stayed away, that there are 200 too many lions in Hoangi now. And what do you do with that if there's not enough land and not enough food? So we don't, we don't take a position on what the right thing to do. You have to leave that to uh, the conservationists. But it's, gonna, it's a tricky issue. If it were to be banned to hunt lions, that a lot of experts think that the parks would shut down. That's the paradox. And that's coming from animal conservationists. Yes, we've, uh, it's, well, Brent in particular uh, has stated you know, on television, he would like to ban hunting of lions uh, altogether. Um, but that if we outlaw or ban hunting, they have an expression which is in, uh, in, in Africa, it's called, if it pays, it stays. But there's no one to really take care of the park other than from the money through the, uh, the hunting licenses. So if no hunting at all ends up with the collapse of the populations, which is even more complicated because of the loss of the natural habitat. Right, and I would think that climate change also is a factor here as well. Yes, especially for, I mean, lack of water. Um, but in general with lions, they used to span into a lot of the Mediterranean and like just their natural habitat was so expansive, like you could find them in Europe. And I mean, there's all different types of like mountain lions, but the same kind of lion. So it's just very interesting how just in general, the climate has changed and they are now kind of sequestered. Yeah, and development think, of land as well. Yeah, and cutting down trees and forest and just development in general is very, you know, very hard on our animal populations. So what do you see beyond um, possibly limiting hunting? Are there other measures that are being taken to protect just wildlife in general in Africa? Um, beside, besides hunting? Yes. Um, like by conservation yeah. groups or by raising awareness worldwide? There are many, many conservation groups. You have some that focus on elephants, some on the rhinoceroses, some on what I would call the big cats, so Panthera, for example, is one of the big uh, organizations. And it's going to take a lot of different things. I don't think there's one size that fits all, um, but you have to start somewhere. And I think when you have the awareness, I think one of the things that really people were trying to understand is why was the death of this one lion such a big deal? When many animals get killed, you know, or hunting or just... And I think the answer is the story, we had sort of a natural protagonist, which is Cecil. And we had, you know, through the hunter, um, we had a bad guy. It doesn't matter what the real facts are. The perception was he's taking the life of this majestic creature. And for many people, now for people who hunt, um, it's kind of par for the course. But for most people, when they saw the pictures, of such a majestic creature, um, it just, they shake their heads and say, how could anybody kill them? And Bella, you have a few illustrations in the book. Yes. Which are wonderful. How did you um, get interested in illustrating or is this something you've been doing for a while? We were actually at this classic building many moons ago. I'd say like 11 years ago. I was a wee little lass and... Um, I don't actually remember why, but I oh, drew I Owen and Mazay. Was there like a... So she, she, we also 
have slightly different le- recollections of history. So I you say. have to go with us. So she will probably- I just remember you. being in the office. She was in the office, but she said to me, I want to go to a business meeting. <laughs> she was six years old and wanted to come to <laughs> a meeting. number one. <laughs> so I said to the, our, our friends at Scholastic, you know, I think Bella wants to come. Is it okay? And when she got in the office, they had sort of this, you know, that roll out white paper that you yes. can doodle on. And they gave her some crayons and we're having a meeting and she's drawing and she holds up a picture of Owen and Mize, which everybody just went, oh my gosh, that's amazing. So that was her first, you know, one take. She did it in one take. Now, Isabella, in particular, you're a junior in high school. What do you want other young people to take away from this book? Um, I think that just wildlife in general, especially with my generation, is just vastly underappreciated. So even something or a species so simple as a pigeon, I think that, well, I also have a little bit of bias because I volunteer at the Wild Bird Fund and spend a great deal of time with them. But even very common animals, I think that just appreciation of the, just the wildlife and the fauna around you, if you could at least appreciate what you have while you have it. That's just amazing. And also, if you could contribute to conservation, that'd be cool. You know, going back to your earlier question, it, this is going to take a real change that may last several generations because everything has, it's all interconnected. So, and Richard Leakey, who some of the listeners might know of, uh, who shut down the uh, ivory poaching back in the 90s, and is now becoming active again. If you lose one species, the chain and the sort of web of life starts changing dramatically. There's a you know little story that's probably not exactly right, but the message is very powerful that if we were to lose one species of bees in four years, the entire world would be barren. Now, we haven't I think that's just a good way to think about it. Um, it hasn't been, sci- it's been attributed actually to Albert Einstein, but I don't think it's actually true. But sometimes the story is more powerful than the fact. So, yeah. but I think that's a, a really powerful way of thinking about it. Absolutely. Would you like to read a passage from the new book? Yes. Most days, the dusty plains of Huangi team with life, dancing to the sounds of nature's orchestra. A silence fell upon Huangi and the world as a hunter's arrow felled a single lion. Then, from the anger and despair, a mighty roar began across the globe, asking new questions, seeking answers, and imposing new laws and regulations, not only about the illegal hunting of lions, but other endangered species as well. U.S. lawmakers even proposed the conserving ecosystems by ceasing the importation of large animal trophies, otherwise known as the Cecil Act. The whole world knows how Cecil died, We hope Cecil's pride, the story of how Cecil lived, helps paint a fuller picture and creates a cause for celebration worthy of a true Lion King. Cecil's remaining pride, his living legacy, now under the protection of Jericho, helps illuminate for us important lessons old and new. We are all our brother's keeper. And out of tragedy and darkness, a new king shall always arise. Thank you, Craig. That's beautiful. Do you want to tell our listeners about Jericho? The the history of Cecil and Jericho is actually very fascinating. And when we first heard about 
what had actually transpired in their history, we thought we had the, the, the elements of telling a very exciting story. And the way it goes, it's a little bit like the Hatfields and the McCoys, where Jericho's father attacked Cecil and his brother, killing his brother. And J Cecil, in turn, killed Jericho's father. So we have sort of a blood feud going on. And for many years, uh, Jericho and Cecil would fight. And in fact, Brent has pictures of them fighting. And one day, Brent got a call from someone out in the field and said, you won't believe this. Jericho and Cecil have bonded. And it's very unusual for a pair of unrelated males to form what's called a coalition. But we thought that was such an interesting element that two former enemies all of a sudden decide, you know, we should get together and we'll do much better out in the, in the wild. And this has big consequences for the children or the cubs. <laughs> well, Cecil was sort of what we call the dominant male and the cubs were all Cecils. Um, what happens though, if the dominant male should leave or whatever, mm -hmm. um, normally Jericho would go in and harm or actually kill the cubs. That's just how nature works. So he could have his own bloodline. And it, as it turns out, sort of the... I guess the crescendo moment in the book, uh, Brent was thrilled when he saw Jericho had taken in Cecil's cubs as his own. That's such and a that's, great aspect of the story, of course. And what, you know, and I think it's sort of the last image that we'd like readers to have is even though Cecil is gone, Jericho now ascends to be the new Lion King. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. That's great. And what are you two working on now? We're, well, we're always looking for new animal stories and we do go by the goosebumps factor. So oh. uh, in general, uh, the deciding factor, at least for us, uh, whether or not we're going to do a story is if we have the goosebump, if it passes the goosebump test. So, Which uh, is what? So if you hear a story, so especially, you know, the part where Jericho takes in Cecil's cubs and I get goosebumps. So oh. essentially if a story can give you goosebumps, then we're like, wow, this is great. I'm gonna write I mean, it. Th there are so many animal stories that are wonderful, but not so many that are epic enough to turn into a children's book. I see. So we've been very fortunate. It's like cute Instagram photo versus full length. Yeah, and, and cat book. videos, which we watch all the time. <laughs> we're very big cat people, so I think we see everything. So do you guys have cats at home? We do. I have two cats. Um, one is a Maine Coon that I adopted from the pound who is, as I call her, the dog cat. Uh, but she'll play fetch and she's cool and I like her and she speaks. And then we have another one who... Is less friendly. She's, she's, in my opinion, is the best cat that a cat could ever be because she's just <laughs> such the anti-human. We, we also have two rather large golden retrievers who are fascinated with the cat that... Bobby, as we call her, <laughs> and she wants nothing to do with them. Gee, that's quite a household. I also have an African gray parrot who just turned five, and uh, we have a red-footed tortoise who I adopted from the New York Turtle and Tortoise Society. He's 17. Oh, gosh. He's this, like, just cool, giant tortoise. We have yeah. lots of visiting animals because... Every once in a while, Bella will sneak something in the house. Your house has the goosebumps factor, too. So. 
Oh, well, that's and it, the family's been, we're animal lovers. Yeah. And, you know, living in New York City, it's different than living in the country, so. Do you ever go any, on any road trips with these animals? Yes, uh, a few. We, hmm, which, I don't know which is well, the most eventful. Well, we had the uh, red-tailed hawks, which we delivered to Raptor Trust from the Wild Bird Fund, which was a lovely, which was a lovely car was a ride. a road trip. To the oh heart of New Jersey. You don't believe in goldfish, I guess. Uh, no. Well, we used to have, we had the, <laughs> the bettas, the fighting, <laughs> fighting fish. Um, no, but I think in terms of road trips, um, yeah, I've been to Kenya for Owen and Mize probably, I think about three times. And we had another book called Looking for Misa, which was in the Congo. And Juliana came with me. And uh, that was that was actually a really... That was a big story because the mountain gorillas were so endangered. When we started, there were only 720 mountain gorillas left on the planet. And, and how many are there now? Uh, the last count we heard is uh, 800. Oh, so, gee. and that's over, that was 2008. So from 2008, the population has actually gone up more than 10%. Which is wonderful. Good work. That's wonderful, thank that you. That is great, that is great. At the center of your stories, there seems to be the story of trauma and overcoming that or incorporating that into your existence. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you work with that, that theme in your books? Yeah, I think in almost every story, there's some either trauma or tragedy or an anxiety, something, that, a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and I think, you know, starting all the way back with Owen and Mize, these stories are accessible for young kids. So the loss of a mother is a difficult topic, but if it's done in a way that we have a baby hippo snuggling with a 700 pound tortoise, it seems to take the edge off and you by reference. So these are actually, think of, you know, I, I would call them nonfiction allegories or metaphors. And kids seem to really enjoy, even the younger ones, um, just, you know, they can relate in a much different way without sort of dealing with the, you know, some of the tough stuff that they might not be ready for. So it's a great way to introduce how parents can deal with trauma, but in making it more referential to remember what happened to Owen. He lost his mom, but look, he turned out he was okay. Knut at the Berlin Zoo was abandoned by his mother and raised by a zookeeper who had to live with him for seven months, 24 hours a day to feed him. So each one has its own angle um, in winters, as another example, was a case of, case of loss of life or limb, mm -hmm. and winter lost her tail, and the solution there, which sounded highly improbable, and hence the goosebumps, is uh, a, a group of engineers, prosthetic engineers, made her not only one prosthetic tail, but they've made her 30, or at least the last time we heard, she's had, had 30 tails, because without a tail, she wouldn't survive. Uh -huh. So kind of is hopeful and inspiring. And if you even go see winter down in uh, Clearwater, so many kids with all kinds of uh, ailments and issues, they can relate to winter. So it's, you know, kids have always loved animals. I'll say this, 99 out of 100 kids love animals. There's always someone who's not. It seems that children take great comfort in nurturing animals, especially animals that need them. Yeah, it's like a, it's, it's a version of, you know, a stuffed animal. And we've, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have stuffed animals for a number of the books. Um, but that's actually, it plays with physiology. Uh, 
Yes. So it's, uh, you know, it, it releases serotonin and certain body farms that uh, really have an impact. Great. And you um, work with animals yourself, you mentioned earlier. I do, yes. Yeah. And what do you, what qualities do you think that brings out in you? They make me incredibly happy. And there are some instances where I can't quite describe why, but it's incredibly rewarding, especially working with injured or ill animals and then seeing them get better. And it's just for me, I feel incredibly passionate about it. It makes me very happy and I'm excited to go and just help the animals. Gives me meaning. Thanks so much to Craig and Bella for coming in today to talk about Cecil's Pride. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.